0: Welcome to the Surge Strength Podcast, powered by Ritter Sports Performance. This podcast is dedicated to helping swim coaches and swimmers learn how to properly implement dry land and strength training programs that result in moving better, reducing injuries, and swimming faster. Let's join your host, Chris Ritter. Welcome
1: back to the Surge Strength Podcast, everyone. Hope you're doing well. I have to be honest, and you probably already know this if you've listened to many of the Swim Coaches Bases podcasts, especially that I've been doing for years, but I love sports, not just the sport of swimming, but specifically professional football and basketball. And I'm so glad I'm able to watch some basketball, the teams going out in the bubble. And before one of the games the other night, they showed LeBron James working out prior to the game. And regardless of your opinion on LeBron, it's clear he's one of the greatest athletes of his generation. And it's largely in part of the time and resources that he has put into his body. Whenever you talk to his close associates or business partners, they say that's the thing no one understands is how much time he puts into that. So it's pretty common for him to be working out for an hour or two before he then goes and plays a basketball game. And I just think people don't understand that. You have that ability to in whatever that looks like. Now, I'm not saying you need to go work out for two hours, but that's part of what makes him great is his work ethic. And then it comes into a well-planned strength and conditioning program to help him succeed. And that's actually what we're trying to do, obviously, on the swimming level or any other sport that involves the water from water polo players. We're helping out now to triathletes, even ultra marathoners, other endurance sports as well it can help the principles that we're talking about here in the surge strength system. Now, one thing too that kind of came to mind as I'm watching in the bubble is, they were talking about with the basketball play in particular is that it's actually gotten quite a bit better and they list off a few reasons. One, the teams aren't traveling around, so they have more time to practice and work on their fundamentals. But just the fact of if you take away travel, NBA teams are flying around all the time And they obviously do that because they're going to go to the different arenas, and the arenas make money, and that's how the teams then prosper. But obviously, that is a downfall on the performance side. There's actually a ton of research and resources going into a lot of NBA teams on better sleep and things like that because of how crazy the travel is on a regular basis in the season. And that got me thinking, too about the changes that you see in swimming in the past 10, 20 years to help the sport become more visible, more popular. If you want that to happen, there has to be a business side to it. So the first one I thought of was in 2008 with the Beijing Olympics, how they switched the finals to morning and instead of evening, obviously, in traditional. And everybody freaked out. Oh, we cannot do this. How can we do this? But that needed to happen for NBC to to be able to televise it. Live. And obviously we saw what Phelps did and all the rest of the swimmers, and that helped propel the sport forward. More recently, we've seen the ISL come into play where some people are wringing up their hands, oh, you can't do this in an Olympic year. And well, obviously we saw that the Olympics is delayed, hopefully. But how do you factor that in? The ISL is going to help promote the sport and have people be able to sit down on their couch and watch it on, you know, on an ESPN on a Saturday in between college football games last fall. That was awesome. And so there has to be a give and take if you want the sport to continue to grow and be able to reach more. And so it was the ISL last year, previous years, the Beijing Olympics, the finals in the morning. I'm curious what it's going to be next. I don't don't know what that is, but there's probably going to be a little bit of a drawback performance wise, or at least the possibility in turn, if you want the trade off of more promotion for the sport, better business for the sport so it continued to grow and that actually leads into the topic that we're going to have in the inside the surge strength academy segment of the podcast. And if you don't know, we're, you're going to listen to audio pulled straight from one of the video lessons in the Surge Strength Dryland Certification in this segment. So it's actually a video lesson. So if I refer to things sometimes, don't, don't worry. You can actually see that when you log into the Surge Strength Academy. You can create an account for free, then you can enroll in the certification if you want, or take Dryland 101 courses. There's plenty of great topics in there if you're wanting to raise Your dryland IQ. But this particular lesson that we're gonna hear from the Surge Strength Academy today is the swim and dryland training throughout the decades. What's changed, what's the same, and specifically looking at how dryland has changed throughout the decades. And that may or may not sometimes mirror changes in swim training. So I hope you guys enjoy that. And then the last segment of the podcast today in Dryland Talk. We're going to be introducing you, I mean, some of you already know him if you've been working with him as a team or individual for our Surge Strength programs, but we're introducing him to the greater audience, and he's one of Ritter's Dryland Certified Coaches, Sam Henley, and he was also a swim coach as well. I'm not going to you know, get too much into the story, but you'll hear it as we introduce him, but Sam's a great person to have on part of the Ritter team. Last week you heard uh, Coach Sarah, and this week you're hearing Coach Sam, and remember too, this is a great time of year to sign up for a Surge Strength program and get a fresh dryland program that's focused on your goals, equipment, and training. There's a link in the show notes if you want to get in contact with us about that or go to our website, surge-strength.com for more information on that but sam's one of those dry land certified coaches that you may be working with if you reach out to us and you want to get a uh, program going and we've had a lot of teams and individuals just in the last few weeks but obviously the last few months with the shutdown and everything reaching out to us and helping so it's awesome to help be a part of that so that does it for this recap here let's get into the rest of the podcast
0: inside the third strength academy
1: Swim and dryland training throughout the decades is what I'm going to be covering now. Back in the 60s and 70s, it really was about how much work could you do, both in the pool and that carried over to land too, if they even did dryland. A lot of times back then, it was thought of of dryland was actually taking away from time in the pool and that it wasn't even close to equal. Again, I'm not saying that all you need to do is go to the gym. And you're going to become an amazing swimmer and never swim. Of course not. You're a swimmer. You need to spend the majority of your time in the pool. But this was to the extreme other end in that they thought 99% of the time should be spent in the pool and maybe 1% on land. And if it was on land, it was usually in the same vein of the stuff they were doing in the pool. Endurance, repetition, circuits, more, 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 faster, harder, and just feeling out of breath, I think generally describes that decade in time. When it comes to dryland it mimicked the training a lot in the 80s and 90s you see quote-unquote lower yardage start to show up a little bit some were still going after the big-time yards but then there were others that were really dropping it down and focusing more on intensity and i think in this area you start to see a little bit more of dryland training i remember one of the uh, elite coaches that i first had the opportunity to work with richard quick late Richard Quick at Stanford, he started to implement this pretty early on and was one of kind of the pioneering coaches when it came to starting to put at least some type of structured dryland program and more importantly, valuing it and understand this is actually a part of the program, not just something that's taking away from pool time. So I think around this decade, you start to see a little bit of a shift from the 60s and 70s, where it really is more part of the program and it's more valued. Again, this is pretty broad, general statements I make. I'm sure there are some programs went one way or the other. But then as we enter the 2000s, I think there's a lot of mix of training philosophies out both in the water and on land. And you're seeing more dry land components. You're seeing more cross training or other activities that they're doing on land to supplement what they're doing in the water. And I just have to give a shout to Tom Dolan there, my favorite swimmer of all time. Had to put him in there in the 2000s. Of course, he went to the 96 Olympics as well, but had to make sure he got in there. But again, 2000s, lots of different directions. Some were still very yardage focused. Some were more intensity. Some were kind of in the middle. And it kind of went the same way with dryland too. It was all across the board. But I think overall, you were seeing at least a raise of awareness of it that came from the 80s and 90s where it became more part of some really successful programs. In the 2000s, I think that even increased where more and more programs are saying, yeah, this is a dedicated part of our program. Dryland is important. It's not just something we do. It's not just a filler. Fast forward to 2010s there, I had just finished up working with one of the biggest clubs in the nation. And I was actually one of the few swim coaches that had certification when it came to strength and conditioning. Luckily, we can't say that's the case now. There are a lot more swim coaches out there that have strength and conditioning certifications, which is great. And honestly, it was one of the driving factors for us to start the Surge Strength Dryland certification is to give swim coaches the tools to how do we do dryland the right way. But I had finished up of just working on a complete curriculum from eight to 18 in this club and making sure that we had levels for every age group and how you progress them over time. And again, doing this back in the early, early 2000s, almost I think 2008, 2009, a lot of it too, one of the few clubs that was really doing this kind of stuff and that even had a coach on staff that had this certification, but thankfully, that's not the case now. A lot hasn't even changed in the last 10 years. So it's kind of funny to look back and think about how much of a unicorn that idea was of a swim coach having strength and conditioning certifications and even having a program-wide curriculum just for dry land, let alone, you know, some coaches and programs don't even have a curriculum for what they're doing in the water, let alone dry land. So that was a unique thing. But luckily, I feel like that is changing. And I think the surge strength dryland certification is going to help that even more formalize that process as well. But one of the biggest striking differences I think you can make is putting these two pictures here of Michael Phelps together—the first Olympics he made and his last—and obviously his coach Bob Bowman and strength conditioning coach, a trainer, athletic trainer at the time, Keenan Robinson, who's now working with U.S. Swimming—they did a masterful job of how to pair swim training and dryland training and i think it definitely helped him right it's not that you could say phelps wouldn't have had the success if he didn't have that dryland who knows what to say but i am sure that both his coaches and he would say that it definitely helped him and was a great factor especially how they were able to complement each other you think about the intensity that he was doing in the pool all the yardage all the volume but they still managed to pair the dryland And so that goes to show you it doesn't matter what type of program you're running whether you're still stuck in the 60s and 70s and doing millions of yards or you're ultra short distance and just going you know as little as possible maybe a thousand fifteen hundred every workout what you do in the water that type of program it doesn't matter as long as you complement the dry land with whatever program you're doing we're going to get into that later on but it doesn't matter as long as it's complementing it. So it's not that oh you can't do dryland with a high yardage program or you can't do dryland with a short, you know, intense program. That it's all about complementing it together and putting the pieces. And I think Phelps is obviously one of the greatest examples of that. His body change from 2000 to 2016 and the dedication that it took, but also the planning and coaching it out there. And now I think more than ever you can say, especially, you know, with the ISL Coming out, you just see the professional athletes more and more on the stage. And you realize, wow, the cream of the crop, they're amazing looking athletes. And we go back to the 60s and 70s, looking behind the blocks there. I don't think a lot of swimmers would have stood out as like the world's best athlete. But now you go to an elite level swim meet at the Olympics or the ISL or something of that nature. You're going to see athletes, world class athletes standing behind the blocks. And if the pool wasn't there, you might not be able to guess what sport they're in. It's also because more at the club, collegiate, and even professional level, resources are getting put into the dryland. So again, it's only building from where I think that arc really started in the 80s and the 90s there to now. It's really an integral part of a club's program. A lot of clubs even, like at the the club level with USA Swimming Grants for the gold, silver, and broads level, a lot of those clubs are putting those resources just to dryland because they know, hey, we need to address this. It's not about what we're just doing in the pool. And the elite athletes are showing that and all the way down to little guys, because overall, the times in swimming are just getting faster and that's not going to stop. So the only way to achieve those new cuts, those new standards is you need to have better athletes that then turn in to faster swimmers in the water. And the elite are showing that overall, though, I don't want this to. Be uh, poo pooing on swimming about, hey, get it together already. Like, uh, you know, at least I feel present day we're in a much better place, obviously, than 20, 30 years ago with drowning. But I don't want to come across negative too, because honestly, swimming is just like any other sport. They're usually behind the curb when it comes to strength and conditioning. I think one of the greatest athletes of all time, Bo Jackson, famously said, Hey, I don't lift weights, you know, and that just still boggles my mind. Like, think of how much even better he probably could have been, because Bo Jackson's aren't walking in your door every day. But he was an incredible athlete without doing the strength and conditioning and having a program. And I think about one of the quotes, I don't even remember when it was, and it wasn't even about him in particular, but just watching a baseball game as a kid, I remember hearing the announcer saying, yeah, you know, they really didn't want him to lift weights because when he goes up to reach for that fly ball, he's just going to be super stiff. And that's just, that's laughable now, because if you're doing the right program, if you're working on your ratios, your periodization, the movements, all the pieces we're going to teach you in the surge strength structure, you don't have to worry about stuff like that. Like, that's just it's just laughable that a baseball player lifting weights is not going to be able to lift their arm overhead to catch a foul ball. And so it's not just swimming that's kind of missed the boat on strength and conditioning. I think pretty much every sport, maybe track and field is the only exception because it's so closely tied to strength and conditioning. But every sport is always a little bit behind the curb when it comes to adopting the cutting edge principles or even sometimes the basic foundations of strength and conditioning. So that's what we're going to provide you here in the coming topics as well. Dryland Talk. Sam, welcome to the Dryland Talk segment on the Surge Strength Podcast.
2: Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's... uh you know, listening to your podcast before I joined part of the Ritter team. This has always been something I've kind of wanted to do. So I'm excited to hop on and talk some shop with you.
1: I've forgotten that you had listened for a while too, before you joined the team. (laughs) It's always a little bit weird to me that you've listened to me for X number of hours, whatever, before we've even met.
2: (laughs) It's weird to like talk to you now that I've listened like, you know, because uh, you know, back when I was coaching swimming, you know, I would listen to your podcast before I went on deck and I thought it would make me on those days a better coach. So, now like coming full circle, I'm working for you, working with you. Um,
1: uh, that's funny. So, yeah, let's actually talk about swim coaching first. So, you're actually swim coach and a strength coach. Talk about how you got into swimming or just even your, your relationship with the sport of swimming.
2: Yeah. So, uh, I have a long relationship with swimming and I probably... I'm I'm creeping up on having as much strength experience as I do coaching experience, but um, yeah, I started <laughs> I started swimming when I was like ten. Uh, ten. Uh, f- funny story is at the age of eight, I was afraid to go into the deep end. Oh. and then at the age of eleven, I broke a minute in the hundred butterfly. So <laughs> that was a really really weird uh, like <laughs> trans yeah transition from. And I've always just been generally athletic, but so I got into it. Uh, you know, as an athlete when I was younger, um, when I was about 15 or 16, I started lifeguarding at a country club. And then I realized how much more money the swim coaches made and how much money they made doing private lessons. So, um, (laughs) that's where I got my start in coaching. Um, and then, you know, just, I started doing it part-time in college. Uh, I kind of lost my way as, you know, young males are often off to do. And then, um, uh, Jackie Bertucci. Uh, she's the daughter of Ray buzzard. Uh, mm-hmm. the legendary UT swim coach kind of yeah. took me under her wing when I was in Knoxville and I started working with her and kind of became her assistant. Um, and then kind of through that, through this time, and this is something that I think makes me unique as a strength and swim coach is that I also was a preschool teacher. Um, oh, wow.
1: I did not know this. And,
2: Sam. <laughs> yeah. And I, I honestly attribute in, a lot of my ability to relate and to coach anybody um, to the ability to coaching or teach in preschool. Because um, really, if you, can get, if you can get a three-year-old to do something that you want them to do, you can make, you know, you can help coach and help anybody all the way up to, you know, master's level swimmers.
1: Um, Sam, I have to admit, the first thing that jumped into my mind when you were starting that sentence was how well that prepared you to work with parents of swimmers (laughs) (laughs) well
2: you know I have some patience you know (laughs) I I think it did help um I think once I was at you know when I so after I worked at TNAC um for a long time or Tennessee Aquatics um I also ran into uh a a guy named Britton Leach who is the uh long-term athletic uh, director for, uh, Emerald youth foundation in Knoxville now, but he was also the strength and conditioning coach, um, for Tennessee aquatics at the time. Yeah. And he kind of also took me under his wing and kind of helped foster some creative thinking skills that I had. And, uh, that's where I kind of started my love for dry lands and strength and conditioning. Um, also is that got-
1: long into, into just your development there? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's yeah, cool. So. I- and so
2: like, I kind of took dry lands when I was an age group coach at Tennessee aquatics under my wing and I didn't have any formal dry land training or any sort of certifications like I do now. Yeah. But, um, you know, I kind of ran dry lands for the whole age group program mm. at Tennessee aquatics. Um, he kind of wrote the program and I facilitated the on deck and the dry land stuff that we did. Um, and it was also through that that I was able to meet Keenan Robinson. Yeah. Um, and he kind of, you know, gave me some tips and went over some stuff to, you know, teach me more about dry lands just and how to help swimmers move and how to help, you know, just increase some uh, strength and power characteristics in a, you know, a highly uh, aerobic and endurance sport. Um, and then after that, I accepted a head site uh, coaching position up in uh, John, or Kingsport, Tennessee. Um, mm-hmm. So I got to lead my own team. Um, I grew it from about 27 swimmers. So I think we peaked at one time, uh, at eighty-one swimmers, Jeez. and then through that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, don't know. I guess if you build it, they will come. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, I also ran drylands and strength and conditioning uh, for the entire site. Mm. Um, and, so, and then through that, you know, I had a couple kids go to junior nationals. I had a co- I had one girl uh, final at junior nationals and make top eight of um, a, a few times. So you know, I was able to coach swimming at a very high level. Um, and then it was through that, my, um, one of my assistants that I had was getting his bachelor's in exercise science at ETSU. Mm. And I met with, uh, one of the doctors there, uh, Dr. Mike Ramsey, um, and talked to him just a little bit about what exercise science was. And in my head, it was just this light bulb that clicked off because Mm
1: -hmm.
2: throughout my whole coaching experience, I always wanted to know why we did things. And for, in, in my opinion, the, um, that's the way we've always done it. So we're going to keep doing it is one of the, that's just like a no, no, you can't ever do that. Um, so
1: real real quick, Sam, up until that point, mm -hmm. were you just coaching as a swim coach, the way you were coached or just other mentors? Like what was your educational process as a swim coach up until that point?
2: So it was, you know, Jackie had been, um, Jackie had been my mentor for that Mm -hmm. mostly. And, you know, she had, um, more of an old school, high yardage approach to swimming. And I, Mm -hmm. um, I think at the beginning, I kind of tried to do a total one eighty from that, and that was a mistake <laughs> um, you know i i uh, tried to do just race pace training and that's the only thing we did I followed u s r p t pretty strictly and I think that was you know I think that there's merit to race pace training, but I don't know if it's the the thing that you always need to do and it needs to be the only thing that you do and yeah. then I also think that it was a mistake to try to go away from you know, doing heavy volume phases and building aerobic capacity that way, mm-hmm. because I think there's merit to that too. Yeah, um, kind of everything in my short time on this earth is, that I've learned is that you know balance is the key to everything.
1: And I'm I'm assuming then that as you got into the strength and conditioning, that that's did that help bring that back? Where you see I see merit to do this and this, and there's a time and almost a place for everything in the training program and cycle of an athlete.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it was around that time that I was mm-hmm. able to go to the school of thought uh, a few times that Matt Crouch oh, puts yeah. on at UT. Mm-hmm. And through that, um, I started learning about Jan Ulbricht and his mm-hmm. periodization and how he puts, um, you know, lactate testing into swimming and how he uses like that evidence and that data to support the things that he's doing. Mm-hmm. And it was all around that time that I started to get into exercise science. And then, um, that's where I kind of started to divert from being a swim coach to being a professional strength coach. (laughs) Um, I met, uh, Dr. Brad DeWeese when I was at, uh, ETSU and he, um, was the, uh, the U S Olympic coach that was there. And now he's the, um, I think he's the associate athletic director at ETSU. Um, and he kind of, you know, saw some, I guess, some promise in me, and I went straight from my uh, exercise science undergrad degree to get my master's in applied sports science. Mm. Um, And that, the whole premise behind um, that type of a degree is to take evidence-based programs and use that similar to how a doctor would give you medicine, um, using data or evidence-based things to prescribe strength training for athletes.
1: Yeah. I think that's great. I remember specifically that kind of stuff coming up when we were going through the interview process with you. And that just kind Mm -hmm. of struck me as like, A, even though, you know, compared to, it's not like you had 20 years of experience, you had good, you know, amount of experience, but the fact that you're making sure, okay, why are we doing this? And it's not just because Mm -hmm. I did this or because some coach told me to, like, there's, there's got to be reasons and evidence for that. And I also thought that was really interesting how you also paired it with your ability to change and even your coaching philosophy in and of itself has gone through a number of different changes and cycles, if you will.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, if you're not growing, you're dying. So,
1: <laughs> <laughs> so talk about how, w- when did you decide, Hey, I maybe want to be a part of Ritter and be a dryland certified coach and help other teams and individuals. What was that process like for you?
2: Um, you know, it was honestly something that I was a little intimidated at first just because, you know, being, I guess, quote unquote, a fan of your podcast. I was like, well, I, um, you know, I, I thought that it was something that I uniquely could fit this, you know, fit Ritter um, mm-hmm. to be a dry land certified coach because, you know, I have an extensive background in coaching swimming. And I also have an extensive background in coaching strength and conditioning. And at the time, right when you hired me, I was actually coaching strength and conditioning for a college swim team yeah so it was almost just like you know i i don't want to say that i was like you know the perfect match or something but i feel like even kind of going through the process that i was a good fit to work for Ritter just because Mm -hmm. of my background in both departments um and you know i it was you know i remember it being a very long and intensive onboarding process um (laughs) and and you know it, it took a long time um, and I think that that just kind of in my head realized that, you know, you really vet people and you really make sure that the people that you're hiring are good people and really qualified to do what they do. So like that gave me a tremendous amount of respect for you because of how intensive the onboarding process was. And, and it wasn't it's only like the through most-
1: the mistakes, Sam. It's only through the mistakes. We, want- <laughs> we need to have a
2: good vetting process. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I, and I think that's an important thing though. And you know, I, a long there was a long period of time in my life that I hated failing at things, but I realized that failure does promote growth. And if, mm-hmm. you know, you're allowed to make mistakes, you're allowed to fail as long as you don't make those mistakes again, and you learn and continue to grow from them.
1: Yeah. And awesome.
2: so, yeah, kind of going back to that, um, you know, I was, you know, getting my master's and looking for something to do part-time. Um, and it just seemed to fit. It was something I could do at any time. It was something I could do at my house. I can do it at, eight in the morning and can do it at eight at night. Um, you know, it just, the, the flexibility of being able to work for Ritter is something that, you know, especially, especially during this pandemic has been just, you know, a blessing because, you know, at, at, at the point where this pandemic really hit, I had just graduated and I was looking for jobs Mm -hmm. and, you know, nobody, you know, no one was really hiring at that time, but I was fortunate to be onboarded with you um, and working for you, and it's been you know just throughout this process, being able to have you know a job and income has been fantastic.
1: Yeah, are we going on about a year now, Sam? I'm I think so. I this. think
2: <laughs> I, I think it was about a year. Uh, I think because in my final semester of grad school, um, I was looking for something that I could do at home. I had been working That's part right. time, you know, part time in a convenience store, um, just picking up hours here and there uh, while I was you know doing school, but um, yeah, and I guess I never really got into this too, but like now I'm a professor of exercise science, which is kind of funny that you know, coming full circle with that too. Um, and that was another thing that uh, my master's program really promoted was you know, making highly educated strength coaches, but having also those highly educated strength coaches teach other people yes. about exercise and mm-hmm. about, you know, uh, sport physiology.
1: Yeah, when actually. Um, talking about that, it came up because I recently, you know, we've had Sarah, the other dryland certified coach on, and and she just talked about the amount of hours she had to do as an intern. It was like 500 hours for a bachelor's. I'm like, good for your program. Like, that's awesome Mm -hmm. that that they're like actually putting standards in place. So they're not just rolling you out. And, you know, I hope you could teach a squat who knows like, but you got the degree. (laughs) And so similar for you having this experience and now being the role of a professor. To help mold future strength coaches to make sure, like it's not just about you know the book science right and and knowing you know different levels of periodization and stuff, but can you actually coach when we're out on the floor and take Mm -hmm. kids through progressions and stuff?
2: Yeah, I think it's important to know the to know principles and to know physiology and to then to also be able to practically apply that. Mm -hmm. And that you know my master's program that my degree is applied sports science, Mm -hmm. and within that for the two years we are. A, we were assigned to a local college and a strength team. So we are a strength, part of the strength and conditioning staff for uh, my first year, I worked with a soccer team and my second year I worked with a swim team. Hmm. So not only are we doing research behind the scenes, but we're also applying that on a daily basis by coaching and teaching strength and conditioning.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, Sam, we'll have hmm. to have you back on the podcast again. But as we're closing up here, what's something you feel like Or just in general, how do you approach when you have a new client or a new team and you have the background of both the swim coach and the strength coach? That's got to help you maybe fast track the way that you're able to communicate and get on board with the coach because you've been there before on some level.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I I know that strength and conditioning is supposed to accentuate a swim program. It's not Mm -hmm. supposed to completely replace the things that you do. Albeit during this time, I think the teams that uh worked with (laughs) us are Mm -hmm. way ahead of the curve. And I've you know, I've gotten that information back by a lot of the teams and the clients that uh, you know, train with Ritter because, you know, everybody is transitioning to an online platform right now. They were already part of an online platform, so it's transitioned seamlessly. Um I think it, you know, I think from a practicality standpoint it helps because, you know, obviously I would love to do barbell training with everybody. Uh, well, not with everybody, not with like, you know, younger kids, but like, you know, you know, with a high school not program, you right, know, it right. would be heavily barbell centric, but I yeah. understand that not every swim team has access to that. So mm-hmm. I think it really helps my creativity when it comes to programming, because I know how it is to show up and then, you know, all of a sudden five kids are running late. You know, the five kids you thought were going to be there that aren't there, um, you know, Ten kids are missing that day. Ten kids come that day. They usually don't come. So you just have to be really, you have to be able to critically think and be on your toes. And I think that I can, because I have that background, I'm able to think about that when I'm programming and writing workouts for teams or individuals.
1: Yeah, it helps that you've been a swim coach yourself running around doing age group (laughs) dryland deck programs, right? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's uh, definitely controlled chaos. (laughs) That's awesome. Sam, thanks for coming on this dryland talk. We'll have to have you back soon. All right. Awesome. Thanks, Chris.
0: Have you joined the Surge Strength Academy yet? It's now free to enroll in the Surge Strength Academy and raise your dryland IQ. Visit surge-strength.com to learn more and enroll today. That's surge-strength.com to enroll in the Surge Strength Academy. The goal of Surge Strength is simple. Build better athletes to generate faster swimmers.